Amen. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Dan. Worship team and Mark as well. Um, If you would, turn this morning to Daniel chapter 4. I didn't didn't plan on doing this this week, but um, decided to toward the end of the week. There's a lot going on these days, and obviously, as Paul mentioned, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear in light of the election on Tuesday. And my goal in directing our attention to this passage, as well as talking about what I'm going to talk about this morning, is for us as Christians to think about one of the things that is very much on the hearts and minds and in the discussions of Christians, Christian leaders, and that's the whole issue of how to vote, how to vote in a Christian way. And so I want us to think about that biblically this morning. But most of all, I want us to um, be encouraged to trust God whatever happens, uh, regardless of what we might agree on or not agree on with regard to the election, and regardless of what actually happens with the election. Um, I've entitled this, Voting When the Election Has Already Been Decided. Uh, For some of us, we've already voted. And many people have already voted, and some people might think, well, even before Tuesday gets here, I think the election has already been decided in some sense. Uh, Others may fear that the deep state or the Illuminati or somebody else has already determined uh, what the election is going to uh, do. Uh, Others may think, you know, one way or the other, one party or the other is going to steal the election. And so there's all kinds of ideas about whether or not this election has already been decided or not. Well, there is another perspective on that, and that's what we see in Daniel chapter 4. And so uh, what's going on in Daniel chapter 4? We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but the whole chapter uh, needs to be read to understand all that's going on here. It's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who's one of the greatest kings in history. He was also uh, one of the most, uh, you could say, uh, cruel Uh, tyrants in history as well, and yet he was a great, uh, he was great in battle and he was great in building, in terms of building uh, Babylon, and so he ruled and reigned over the kingdom of Babylonia, and he was actually the one that God used to bring judgment on Judah and to destroy Jerusalem and to destroy the temple, and so he's not an insignificant person in Secular history or biblical history. But we find a very, very interesting story here, true story, of how God warned him a year ahead of time that if he did not repent, that something significant was going to happen in his life. And he gets this dream where he pictures a tree whose this tree is huge and beautiful and extends over the whole world, and all the animals of the world uh, feed off of this tree. And in the dream, the tree gets cut down. And for a period of time, that tree is out of play. But its stump is left. And so he doesn't know what the dream means, and so he calls for Daniel, and Daniel explains to him what the tree means. He says, the tree is you, King Nebuchadnezzar, and God is going to cut you down. And yet, your stump is going to be left so that you will regain power after a period of time, but you're going to actually be driven away from your throne. You're going to live like an animal 
for seven years. And then your sovereignty, your rule will be restored. And so that's where we are. This is basically Nebuchadnezzar reporting on what God did and how he responded to God's humbling of him. So it says in verse 28 of Daniel chapter 4, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the word of God. I'll come back to this story as we close this morning. But as I mentioned, there's a lot of talk going on in the Christian community in our country about voting and whether or not there is a Christian way to vote in this election. Um, I've been hesitant to actually preach on this because I don't want anybody to think that I'm preaching in favor of a particular candidate. Because one of the things that I don't think the pulpit should be used for is to associate the Lord Jesus with any particular political candidate. So that is not what I'm attempting to do here, and I don't think that's the right thing to do. God is not Republican or Democrat, nor does uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden or any of the other candidates deserve to be considered the Christian candidate or God's chosen candidate. We should not think in those terms with regard to individual people. But that does not mean that there isn't something to say about how to vote. We may not say this is who you should vote for or who you should think is God's man We shouldn't do that, but we should think as Christians about how we should vote. And there are those like John Piper and Wayne Grudem and a lot of other people who are talking about the issue of um, how Christians should vote in this election. And even John Piper said, I'm baffled at how certain people can 
uh, take certain stands and vote in certain ways. And I think there's a lot of that on both sides of the, the issue in various ways. Christians are just baffled how one group looks at voting and the other group looks at them and says, I'm baffled at how you look at the whole voting issue and, and why. Um, well, one of the things we have to do is obviously go back to the Word of God as Christians. That's our only authority for determining what voting should look like for us. And yet you can't turn to a, a verse that says, thou shalt vote this way or, or that way. And why is that? Well, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't letting people vote. It wasn't a popular election uh, for Nebuchadnezzar or the other kings in the Old Testament. They did not have the kind of system of government that we have today. And it wasn't that way in the New Testament either. And so you don't see direct references to voting as we think of voting because that's not the way it worked back then, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But that doesn't mean there aren't principles that we can apply because I firmly believe, and one of the things I want us to always keep in mind is that God's word is sufficient for every situation, for every decision I have to make. He's given me in the Bible what I need to do what is right and what is wise with my life and in every decision. And that's why it's important to at least spend a little time talking about what that looks like. Now, some people don't value voting very much for a number of different reasons. They don't think their vote is making a difference. Uh, They don't like the political system or whatever it may be. Um, But the reality is the Bible does call us to love our neighbor. And I do believe that you can make the argument that um, one of the things we owe the kind of government we have is to participate in the government that we have and use it as a means of actually loving people around us. And as I've implied before, it's not my job as a pastor to tell you who to vote for, but it is my job as a pastor and as elders to help you think through how you should vote, not who you should vote for. Now, some people might ask the question, you know, is it possible that a Christian shouldn't vote at times? Yeah, it could could be that at certain times that every party and uh, that you see um, that you have the opportunity to vote for is somehow trying to legalize something that the second table of the Ten Commandments forbids. And so, yes, there could be situations where every party is so um, in violation of the word of God that we might not vote. And yet, um, the question is whether or not we've really arrived there yet in our own country. There are just three things that I just want to point out briefly this morning. There's a lot of things that could be said. We don't have time for that. But we want to vote as Christians with proper concerns and priorities. We want to vote with the big picture in mind or, the, or from a, what I would call a package perspective. And finally, and this especially applies to the passage that I read, we're to vote without fear. And so first of all, we're to vote with proper concerns and priorities. Um, the founder of McDonald's was asked one time, um, you know, what are your um, priorities? What do you believe in? And Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, said, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. But when I get to the office, I reverse that order so that God is at the bottom of the list and McDonald's is at the top of the list. We don't want to do that when we go into the voting booth. 
God should be at the top of the list in terms of our concerns as we vote. And the Bible talks about that in a number of different ways when it says things like 1 Corinthians 10, therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whether you vote or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, which means my concern should be, am I honoring God in the way that I'm approaching this voting thing? Am I seeking to please God in how I'm voting? We're to be concerned about the progress of the gospel. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 9, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Are we applying that? Are we concerned about how our vote will impact the proclamation of the gospel, uh, the freedom of religion, the freedom to assemble, uh, the freedom of speech in our country? We should be concerned about obedience to foundational biblical morality. 1 Corinthians 7 says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. The commandments of God are important when we think about voting. And so when it, when it says in Exodus 20, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, and things like that, the parties we're voting for, the people we're voting for, we ought to ask ourselves, are they encouraging things that in some way, shape, or form encourage and support and seek to even legislate uh, that which breaks those very commandments? Proverbs 14 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Those who say you can't legislate morality don't understand what law is. Law is the legislation of morality in some form or fashion. We should be concerned about biblical justice. We talked about that a number of times in talking about the social justice issues. Um, It says in Leviticus 19, that we're not to show partiality to the poor or give preference to the great. Uh, We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to keep God's statutes, which means I should be concerned that every person in our country is treated rightly, justly, fairly under the law. doesn't mean everybody gets the same equal outcome, but everyone should be treated justly under the law. We should be concerned about future generations, how our vote is going to impact not simply us, but the future, uh, our children, grandchildren, and otherwise. One of the things that I, uh, there's a verse in First, uh, Second Kings 20 where Hezekiah gets a revelation from God where God says, there's some bad days coming. And those bad days are related to some of the decisions you've made. And he says, is it not good if there will be peace and security in my days. Just kind of like, oh well, at least I'm going to be okay. I despise that attitude. Anytime I see it in myself, I just think it's a terrible attitude to say, as long as it's okay for me, I'm not concerned about future generations. We should be concerned about the nation, the city, the place in which we live. In Jeremiah 29, you've got the children of Israel living in a pagan land, And God tells them, seek the prosperity of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf or in its prosperity will be your prosperity. And so it doesn't matter how pagan the nation is that you're in, you should desire the good of that nation. You should work toward the good of that nation and we should be concerned about that. And obviously that's 
uh, connected with Galatians 6.10 that talks about being concerned for the good of all people, which says, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people. So all of that factors into the idea of voting with proper concerns and proper priorities, uh, thinking about what that should look like and what that should mean. But I would encourage us also to think in terms of voting with regard to the big picture or the package perspective. We've all heard the parable of the blind men and the elephant. Or we've got these blind men who hear about an elephant that comes to town. They don't know what an elephant is. So all of them go and they grab a part of the elephant. And you know, one grabs the tusk and one grabs the ear and one grabs the leg and one grabs the tail and one grabs the, you know, touches the side of the elephant and they all come to different conclusions about, you know, what an elephant is. Some think it's an elephant is like a rope, an elephant is like a wall, an elephant is like a spear, an elephant like is like a fan, etc., etc. And that whole parable is meant to encourage uh, embracing, you know, a plethora of religions and assuming that we just put, if we put them all together, we can figure out what the truth really is. But I would have used that as an illustration of all of them were wrong because they only saw one aspect of the elephant. And if we only focus on one aspect of uh, what's going on in an election, we can be very wrong in terms of how we evaluate what the best way to exercise my vote is. We have to consider the big picture. And that's what I would encourage us to do. One of the things that is very popular in our day and time is to focus on individual personalities and simply base our vote simply on the person. Um, And there's a reason for that, because the people that are running certainly are significant. Um, But the, the question is not simply what is the character of the person, but the question is how does the issue of character fit into our system of government? Because a lot of people will talk about you know, in the, in the Bible it says things like in First Kings 14, uh, he will give up Israel because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and which, with, with which he led, excuse me, misled Israel into sin. So they'll look at the evil kings in the Bible and they say, see, if the, if the guy that's running doesn't have a certain kind of character, then he will automatically lead the whole nation into sin. The problem with that argument is that wasn't talking about Jeroboam's character per se. It was talking about how he supported the government institution of false worship. It wasn't just his his character. It was what he was doing. It was his policies. It was his uh, fostering of pagan religion through government-supported law and design. And so um, for me, it's helpful to keep in mind that when we consider the people we're voting for, we're not electing a king who has absolute authority. We're electing a president in a democratic republic. We're also not electing an elder of a church, someone that we want to tell our children to follow their example. But what we are electing is we're electing someone who swears to uphold the Constitution, So I do want to know whether or not that man actually is going to be someone I can trust to uphold the Constitution, because that's what he swears to do on the day that he's inaugurated. 
And so that part of character is important, is whether or not he will actually fulfill that vow before God that he is making when he enters into office. All candidates are flawed. And so that's why, for me, it's not just about the person that you're voting for. We are voting for a person, but we're not just voting for a person. We're also voting for a party. We're voting for party platforms and policies. And that's why, for instance, in Jeremiah 25, it's interesting. God talks about Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against the land of Judah. He calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Why? Because he had such great godly character? No, but but because he had a policy of conquest that he was going to use to bring a just judgment on his own people. It was his policy of conquest that was actually the sense in which he was being used by God. And therefore, the policies of the party are very, very important in terms of who we support. One of the things that's also been a big deal has been the issue of whether or not there's one, we should be one-issue voters. If there's one issue that should determine whether or not we vote for one person or another. And I would say it depends on what that issue is. And going back to the whole issue of whether or not people are wanting to legislate things that violate the Ten Commandments, I think as Christians we have to take very, very seriously any party or any person, regardless of whether they're Republican, Democrat, or any other uh, uh, party, whether or not they actually, as a party, and as the person running for that party, support the legislation of things that actually violate the Ten Commandments. We have to take that kind of thing very, very seriously. You go on from that, you talk about the fact that we're not just voting for a person or voted for policies, we're not just voting for a person and policies, but we're actually voting for a multitude of people. An administration is like a body. It's got, you've got all kinds of people that are working in that administration. And therefore, we have to consider how that person and that party are going to flesh out the, all the various appointments that might come. And then there's just the issue of the perspective on the role of government. What do we even think the role of government is? Um, in First Peter 2, uh, Peter says the role of government is the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We need to vote for parties and for people who embrace that. They embrace uh, the support of law in our land, the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. Um, that's what God says government is supposed to do. And then finally, it's, and all of this kind of feeds into this, is, and it's the final question is, you know, what is the vi- overall vision of the party or the person that we're supporting? Proverbs 29 says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. Obviously, the vision there is the law of God, that somehow we have to ask ourselves, what is the vision for our country that we're voting for? And all of that takes some thought. You have to really work at it. And unfortunately, many of us in this country overall don't take the time to really read platforms and think about uh, what the overall vision of people and parties are. 
And yet, as Christians, uh, we should take our vote very, very seriously. Regardless of who we end up voting for, we should take all of these things into consideration. But let me uh, close with the last thing, which is uh, the most important thing from one perspective this morning, uh, especially for those of us who've already voted uh, in this election. Vote without fear. Uh, Einstein, uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of the most intelligent men who's who ev- has ever lived, actually was not a believer. He wasn't a Christian. Uh, I think he was Jewish, but he wasn't a believer in God. Um, and one of the reasons why he didn't believe in God is he said, if this being is omnipotent, then every occurrence, including every human action, every human thought, and every human feeling and aspiration is also his work. How is it possible to think of holding men responsible for their deeds and thoughts before such an an almighty being? In giving out punishment and rewards, he would, to a certain extent, be passing judgment on himself. How can this be combined with the goodness and righteousness ascribed to him? Basically, he's saying, if God is truly sovereign, how can man be responsible? And so, since I cannot understand how that could be, then God must not be. And therefore, he did not fear God. But the reality is, Daniel chapter 4 and many other passages of Scripture argue that man is fully responsible. And yet, God is fully sovereign over everything that happens. And it's that very truth that actually is meant to not deliver us from our responsibility, but to deliver us from fear as we exercise our responsibility. So the passage that we have in Daniel 4 is not meant to uh, encourage us not to vote or not to care about how we vote, but it's actually meant to give us peace as we walk through this, as we vote according to to our conscience, and as we wait to see what happens this week or however long it takes for them to determine who the victor is. So just very quickly, what does that mean practically? Well, it says in 1 Timothy 2, First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we're to pray for conditions that are best for the progress of the gospel. The Bible never tells us to pray that our freedoms would be taken away. To pray that we would be persecuted. It actually tells us to pray that we would not be persecuted. That we would have the freedom to proclaim the gospel. Now it's up to God if he determines that we need some persecution. It's up to God to determine whether or not we need to have our freedoms taken away. For the sake of the gospel. But that is not the way we're called to pray. We're to pray that God would allow us to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity for the sake of the progress of the gospel. Secondly, we're to seek to do good for our community and state and country. It's interesting as you look at the story of Daniel in the book of Daniel. If you read Daniel chapter 4, Daniel sees the vision that's going to happen 
Uh, and what, what God is threatening Nebuchadnezzar. And he actually says in Daniel 4, uh, verse 19, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. What is he saying there? O king, O pagan king who hates my God, oh, I hope and pray this doesn't happen to you. That is a heart that says, I desire your good. And he encourages Nebuchadnezzar to repent. If you go on and read further, um, he wanted the good of a pagan king and a pagan nation, no matter how wicked they were. That brings us to uh, the point that we should just remember that God is sovereign and he will put into office whom he chooses. You notice in verse 31, it says to King Nebuchadnezzar, your sovereignty has been removed from you. By who? By God. If President Trump is not reelected, it's because God has removed him from this position. Uh, he goes on to say to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 32, you'll be driven away from mankind. You're going to become like a beast eating grass. If you read other parts of Daniel 4, it talks about the fact that in verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him. And so he actually loses his mind. He goes crazy and begins acting like an animal. And for seven years, this takes place. And it says, um, this is going to happen to you so that you learn a lesson. And, and what is the lesson? Um, in verse 35, that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He was, to learn, he was to learn that heaven rules, that God puts people in power and God removes people from power. That ultimately, because God knows the end from the beginning, because God ordains everything, God has already decided who's going to win this election. And he decided it a long, long time ago. Now that doesn't mean... We should be irresponsible. We should still do all the things we just talked about, not only in this election and in other elections, but ultimately we're to rest in the fact that God is going to determine who the next president is. And that is meant to comfort us because God is the one who loves us and he is going to take care of his people. We need not be afraid. We need not be afraid because, as I said in your notes, nothing can prevail against Christ's church. It says in Matthew 16, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What that really means is the gates of Hades cannot keep us out. I will save who I'm going to save. So God is going to continue saving people, even if... Um, the next administration is one that legalizes unrighteousness more and more, even if, if it's an, uh, uh, an administration that increasingly persecutes the people of God. God is still going to fulfill his saving purposes. And finally, God will keep his promises and fulfill his purposes. In Isaiah 46, it says, uh, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a distant country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, I will certainly do it. 
It's God speaking. I've planned it. I will do it. And so when we think of the man of my purpose, who's the man of God's purpose? In the context, he appears to be talking about Cyrus, another pagan king who deposed the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. So in one one chapter, you've got God talking about the man of his purpose being Nebuchadnezzar. Then you find out that Cyrus, who defeats Nebuchadnezzar, is the man of his purpose. It's the one he puts into power. That's the man of his purpose, to accomplish what he deems right and wise and good. And so we ask the question, what if so-and-so wins? What if Trump wins? What if Biden wins? John Calvin said this, whether tyrants obtain power or sovereigns are pious and just, all are governed by God's secret counsel, since otherwise there could be no king of the world. So whether God puts into power a tyrant or whether God puts into power someone who's pious and just, it's all according to God's secret counsel. So what does God want us to do? He wants us to trust and he wants us to love. He wants us to trust him. And he wants us to love people no matter what, no matter who wins. And may God give us the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust you, that we need not be afraid, though many people are anxious and fearful in light of the things that are going on in our country, in light of how the the election might turn out. Father, help us to be responsible to exercise our citizenship in a way that pleases you and honors you and is consistent with the principles of your word. Help us, Father, even when we disagree on what that means practically, that we would be charitable and gracious to each other. And I pray that in all of it, we would trust you and trust your sovereign goodness over it all. Trust you to keep your promises to your people Trust you to fulfill your good purposes in this country and in this world. And help us not to be anxious. Help us not to fear. Help us to pray. Help us to do what is right and wise and good. And help us to proclaim that there is a Savior and his name is Jesus. And we all need him desperately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.